continue to stir our hearts and our souls accordingly as you would have. And Lord, have your way with us during this time. We submit ourselves before you. And now I preach your word, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we live in a culture where fame is at our fingertips, isn't it? With Twitter, you can have thousands of followers of people you don't even know who are following you. You can send out a tweet and these people will know what you said. Through YouTube, you can post a video and then get tens of thousands of hits. You can become a YouTube sensation and have instant fame worldwide, just like that, by posting a video for free. And all you need is a few success stories to keep that passion alive. Guys like Justin Bieber, the high schooler who's become a, a, a hit. He's a household name for all the young ladies who are in high school and junior high here. He's a star. All because of a YouTube video that someone got a hold of and passed it along and voila, there you go. It's at our fingertips. And many in our culture just yearn for that kind of fame, to be known by people. The more the merrier throughout the world would be best. So I googled, I made a search, said, how to become famous on YouTube? And 88 million pages of Google showed up. Ranging from things of 10 ways to become famous on YouTube or how to create a music video that will make you famous or how to become a singer, uh, use your voice to become famous on YouTube or people talking about those who become famous. The, the yearning and desire for fame in our culture is unprecedented and the avenues to do it are at our fingertips. And I got to thinking about this, how so many of us are driven to the desire to be known. And what if we had a like-minded kind of desire or even a greater one to make God known. To let that be our desire, the longing of our heart, that Jesus would be famous throughout the world. Not me, not me getting known through YouTube, Twitter, or whatever, my blog, but that Christ would become famous to a dying world. As I stated last week, our prayers that God would ignite in us a, a, a passion for the fame of God that all peoples everywhere would come to know Him. And secondly, that God would raise up missionaries among us. Pray that He might be calling some of you. And maybe He's not at the moment, maybe it'll be five years from now, but He begins that work today. Or maybe you're at the threshold of making that crucial decision. We pray that God would raise you up. And that for some of you who God may not be calling to the field, that you would just be big, generous givers to the work of Christ across the world that would reach deep in our pockets I was pleased to hear we asked, I asked Rick Lexby about our church's giving and with our special gifts and our offerings we give to our missionaries around 10% or so of our offering goes to missions but would it be great to excel, that, to excel in that to exceed that it's our prayer you know a, a desire for missions begins to fade when a longing for God's glory begins to dwindle. This is for that reason that Piper said, and I quoted last week, that missions exist because worship doesn't. That there are people and groups in this world who don't worship God. They don't love Him. They don't care about Him. And the whole reason we need missionaries is to take the message to those people that they can be fearers of God and love Him and know the joy that there is in Christ. 
And for that we need boldness. Because there's a reality that there is hostility in the world toward the things of God. Just this past week, I got a message on Twitter from somebody I follow. And they said, they, they drew my attention to a, a guy, a, a former Muslim who turned Christian, named Said Musa. He was arrested this past spring for becoming a Christian. He was imprisoned in Afghanistan. And he's been suffering at the hands of authorities. He's been abused physically, sexually, emotionally. They've starved him, they've uh, deprived him of sleep. Here's a brother of ours who's in prison in Afghanistan. And just two days ago, they said he was awaiting execution any day now. There's a hostility in this world to the things of God. We don't have to look that far, even in our own world, in our own culture here in America. The God of tolerance is feared much more than the God of the Bible. And we who are believers who say that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life, that no one can come to the Father but by Him, we are labeled as intolerant, as arrogant, as exclusive people who, don't, who need to catch up with the times. There is that hostility. And will that hostility be acted out upon? We don't know. But we sense that our culture is at a turning point. But in the midst of these realities, isn't it our desire that Christ would be made famous? And that's what takes us to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a wonderful psalm, but it, it begins in a really odd way. It begins with a question, first of all, and it begins with a scene that appears to be really chaotic. If you look at your Bibles in verse 1, why do the nations rage? There's a commotion it's loud, and the people's plot in vain. Verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together. There's a lot of ruckus going on. It's a loud scene, it's chaotic. It reminds me of the stock exchange, where one voice is trying to exceed the voice of the other. And there are people who are feeling rage. They plot in their hearts. They think, hmm, what can we do? And they wonder, what, what is their... Beef, what are they so mad about? Well, verse 3 says, this is what they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They feel like they're in bondage. They have handcuffs. They're feeling oppressed, perhaps. They want freedom. And an initial thought might be, well, maybe they're in a government that has a heavy hand. Maybe they are suffering at the hand of a dictator. But as we look closely... In verse 1, the nations rage and the people's plot, but it's in vain. So all these nations are getting worked up. They're angry about something, but ultimately they're working up, they're, they're getting angry, is, is in vain. Because they're facing up against something that's greater than them. And to our surprise at the end of verse 2, the problem isn't some evil, wicked dictator, but these people are angry it says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers that take counsel together against the Lord, Yahweh, it's all caps, and against His anointed. These are people who see and perceive God to be binding to them. They want freedom. They want, they want God out of the picture. They're angry. They're raging. They're plotting in vain. They want nothing to do with God, with the Lord and His anointed one. Now, there are many in our society who have a similar perspective of God. They see God as someone who prevents them from having fun. 
And they see the freedom that there is in Christ truly is bondage. And they're confused and they're lost. But there's a turn in this story here. We go from these nations angry at God to a description of God Himself. See, they want to come up against the Lord, but in verse 4, we get a marvelous statement. Because we want to ask, is God, is God stressed out by this? Is God concerned when the nations are up against Him, when people hate Him, when He is not feared? Is God worried? Is He thinking, this is my undoing? Maybe He's thinking about what Nietzsche so boldly uh, stated that God is dead. Nietzsche in his essay, The Gay of Science, he writes, God is dead, but given the ways of men, there may still be caves for thousands of years in which his shadow will be shown, and we, we still have to vanquish his shadow too. Is God intimidated by those kinds of thoughts from the people in Psalm 2 to the philosophers of our own day? Is he afraid that this is my undoing? Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. God is not afraid of the peoples of the earth. He laughs. It's not that God thinks it's funny in the sense where he's, oh, these people are rebellious, that's funny. He, la- he laughs at their ignorance. The peoples of the world are plotting against God. They sit on thrones in a capital city within a building in a room on a chair. What's the Lord's throne? He who sits in the heavens. Isaiah says, the heavens is his throne, the earth is his footstool. And these are the people who try to rebel against the God of the universe. And God laughs. He holds them in derision. He mocks at them. They have no clue what they're doing because God is sovereign and these people are lost. God goes on to, and the psalmist goes on to write, then he, referring to the Lord, will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. God's patience towards sin will one day come to fruition where God will judge in sin. His holiness cannot coexist with rebellion. And his, he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fear. There's a reality of the lostness of people who rebel against God. And it's a scary one. So we see the nations are against the Lord, but they're also against his anointed, it says in the end of verse 2. Who is the Lord's anointed? Well, we get one description of him in verse 6. The Lord says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The anointed one throughout the Old Testament could be a prophet, it could be a priest, it could be a king. And here we see in verse 6, it's a king. There is a king who God has anointed to be ruler of the world. But this is no ordinary king, for no ordinary king can have these raging nations submit to him. Now what's really fascinating is that this word anointed in Hebrew is Mashiach, from which we get the word Messiah. In the New Testament, in the Greek, that's translated Christ. See, this psalm is a message of God's deliverer, God's Messiah, who will be the king of this universe, that God has placed on the throne. This passage is quoted four times in the New Testament, alluded to 14 times. 
And there we see that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the anointed king whom the Lord has placed on his throne to rule the earth. But in sad reality, it is Jesus that the nations are raging against. They're plotting in vain against. They're standing up against. They don't want anything to do with Jesus and the Lord, Yahweh. There's sad realities in this world when people rebel. And there's a lostness, and that ought to cause our hearts to ache. As I mentioned last week, there are over 6,800 unreached people groups in what's called the 1040 window alone. People who don't love God, who don't know God. Uh, There's a slide behind me just here in a moment that shows the 1040 window. 10 degrees north latitude, 40 degrees north. And it stretches from North Africa to the Middle East to Asia where the primary beliefs are Muslim, Buddhist, Hindus, and then there's communists within there. People who don't know God, don't love God, don't fear God, they rage against God, they plot in vain. They resist. And this is the situation in the 1040 window. Who's going to take the good news that Jesus offers to them? Who's going to stand in the face of hostility like said Musa does? and say, we're going to take the gospel to them. Who's going to have that longing in their heart to see those people come to know Christ? But as bleak as it is there in the 1040 window, we see those trends even in our own country. There are many prominent atheists in this day and age who are writing a lot about and against Christianity and religion. One of the most prominent his name is Christopher Hitchens. You may have heard of him. His book... God is not great, how religion poisons everything, cracked the number one bestseller in the New York Times. And that shows how receptive people are to that book. Whether or not they believe it, they're reading it. They're buying it. And the blurb for that book says, it says this in the back. In the tradition of Bertrand Russell's Why I Am Not a Christian and Sam Harris's recent bestseller, The End of Faith, Christopher Hitchens makes the ultimate case against religion. That's a bold statement. He makes the ultimate case against religion. With a close and erudite reading of the major religious texts, he documents the ways in which religion is a man-made wish, a cause of dangerous sexual repression and a distortion of our origins in the cosmos. With eloquent clarity, Hitchens frames the arguments for a more secular life based on science and reason in which the heavens are replaced by the Hubble telescope's awesome view of the universe. And Moses and the burning bush give way to the beauty and symmetry of the double helix. This is a book advocating for the non-existence of God. And it's the number one bestseller in the New York Times. This is in our own country where the nations rage, they plot in vain, they plot against God, they want nothing to do with Him. You know, a sad reality is that Christopher Hitchens presently has cancer. I just, my heart grieves for him because where's his hope? Where's his hope? The Hubble telescope? What about the one in whom the Hubble telescope takes photos of? His creation. This universe. What if the double helix? Who created that? And yet so many in our world go about lost, without hope, without God without life. But Jesus is the ultimate king and everyone needs to bow before him. In verse 7, 
the Messiah, this deliverer, this Jesus speaks up. It says, I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, this is, this is the Messiah speaking, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It says that this Messiah is the son, is the son of God. And this is not to say that there was a time in which Jesus did not exist, as many incorrectly see. This is not what it's saying. In fact, Jesus is called the Son of God because of his incarnation when he took on human flesh. And it's marvelous how Hebrews 1 makes this very point. And it quotes this passage and it says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you? And it's to none of the angels. But then he says, And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, this is referring to the Messiah, let all God's angels worship him. See, in Hebrews, the very point is that this Messiah is the Son of God and is worthy of worship. Now, only God could be worshipped. In verse 8 of Hebrews 1, it says, Your throne, O God, is forever, referring to the Son of God. So what is in mind here referring to the Messiah as the Son of God is that he is the heir of the universe, as the firstborn is an heir of their parents' inheritance. And here Jesus stands, the Messiah, the King of kings, on his throne, ruling the nations. Ask of me, in verse 8, and I will make the nations your heritage. This is a promise given to Jesus, to the Messiah. If you ask of the nations, they will be given to you. This is a display of God's grace. That God would redeem peoples from all, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. But right after that, there's a grim reality again. There are those who resist. And those who resist, in verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In some ways, I feel the temptation to want to gloss over a harsh statement like that. That God will break those who rebel with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. But as I think about that, we need to understand God's judgment if we're really going to understand His grace. We can't go out telling people, come to Jesus, your life will be great. There's not going to be any problems. You know, it's that, that one-sidedness. And just as God offers love and grace, He's also God of wrath and judgment. And that's what Psalm 2 is clarifying for us. Even in Jesus' reign as king, there is grace and there is judgment. And all nations will bow before him. It reminds me of Philippians 2 when it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. In the early 1600s, two Puritans wrote a book on the restoration of the Jewish peoples. And in that book, they talked about Jesus becoming the king of this universe and that every knee will bow before him. When they were writing from England, and the king of the time, which is King James I, who, who financed the, the writing of the King James Version, King James didn't like that. He caught on to that pretty quickly. So when you say that every knee will bow before this king in Israel, this Jesus, you're also saying that me, King James, will bow before him. And he, he heard it, he knew what it meant, and he imprisoned them for nine weeks. Nine weeks. Because he didn't want to bow before Jesus as the king. 
And so many people go about their days in our culture who don't want to bow their hearts before Him. Who in the same way resist Him and are angry at Him. And they don't want anything to do with Him. And yet, Jesus is the King. Yahweh sits enthroned in the heavens. The peoples, when they rage and they plot, it's in vain. So we have in verse 10 a response. In light of this fact that, that, that God is sovereign, that Jesus is the King, that every t- attempt to rebel against Him is futile, this is what the psalm says. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Stop continuing on in folly. It's foolish to resist God. Quit your kicking and screaming. And this is what it says. Instead, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Three responses. To serve the Lord with fear. Many resist because they do not fear God. And here the psalm says, you've got to fear God and serve Him. You've got to humble yourself before Him. Rejoice with trembling. Know that there's joy in Him. But there's still awe in His presence. And then it makes this odd statement to kiss the sun. It has the idea of bowing down and kissing the ground. It's to pay homage to Him. To submit and bow before Him. Now if we look in verse 11 and the beginning of verse 12, we have a, a poetic structure in Hebrew which is beautiful. The first thing is to serve the Lord. And in the beginning of verse 12 is to kiss the sun. Which is a, a statement of submission. And then we have serving the Lord with fear and rejoicing with trembling. So we have fear and trembling. And in the middle of that is this call to rejoice. Because there's true joy that is in God. You know, many want to resist God because they feel like He cramps their style. They want to have fun in this life. They want to experience joy. They want to pursue pleasure. And little do they know that the ultimate pursuit of joy and the ultimate pursuit of pleasure is in Jesus. And even the psalmist gets it. He says, rejoice. You can have joy but with trembling, a reverence before God. It's a call to submit. And in New Testament language, it's a call to repent. Stop rebelling. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling and kiss the Son. Lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Here we have these twin things that take place in God's ways. His wrath and His mercy. His grace and His judgment. And that's what the cross symbolizes. Because at the cross, God's wrath was satisfied. God is a just God and He has to punish sin. But at the cross, His grace and His love is most beautifully on display. One Puritan writer, William Gouge, wrote this. He says, Thus we see how in working out our redemption, divine grace and justice meet together and sweetly kiss each other. Justice in reference to the Son of God who has satisfied God's justice to the full and grace in reference to us who neither have made nor can make any satisfaction at all. God's grace and justice kiss at the cross giving life to those who trust in Him. And that is a reason for rejoicing with trembling. So now let's think about missions then. That people across this world don't know that joy. They don't know that sweet kiss from God. 
the God of justice, yet the God of grace and love. And they are without hope. To all the 1,500 unengaged people groups, to all the 6,871 unreached people groups, and to all the 16,594 people groups in this world, will we take that message to them? Will we have a, a longing to see people come to know Christ? Christian rap artist Lecrae has a song called Send Me. And he makes this amazing and soul-stirring statement in the song. He says, Look, dog, life is more than church, work, and football. What if you were dead in sin and Christians overlooked y'all? This is why we leave the couch and leave the comforts of our house to show a dying world a God they'll probably never read about. And that's the heart of it all. To, to leave our homes, leave our comforts. Just imagine if, if, if we who know Jesus, if someone overlooked us and said, oh, you know what, I, I know Christ, but I'm not going to tell them. And he's appealing to that. And this marvelous message, it motivates missions. This marvelous message motivates missions. Psalm 2 is also quoted in Acts 4, when Peter and John were imprisoned. They were imprisoned for healing a man and telling him about Jesus. And, and Peter and John, they spoke up and said, hey, we've got to obey God over man. So the people commanded them, you will not speak any more of his name, and they released him. So Peter and John went to the church, and they told the other believers what had happened. And they lift their voices in prayer, and they say, O sovereign God, and they quote Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and his anointed one. And then they go on to pray, asking God for boldness. They recognize what Psalm 2 is about. It's about this reality, that Jesus is the exalted king, and that people need to rejoice and know and trust in him. So they pray for boldness to take the gospel out to the world. They don't pray for their safety. They don't pray for their comforts. They pray for boldness in Acts 4. So in Psalm 2, we see that God is sovereign. We see that Christ is exalted. We see that hostility is inevitable. We see that God's wrath is imminent. We also see that His grace and His mercy is abundant. One person wrote, Ye sinners, seek His grace, whose wrath He cannot bear. Fly to shelter of His cross and find salvation there. But it's on us, God's people, to take that message to the world. It's on us to feel that burden of making him famous to peoples who plot in vain and rage and take counsel against him because they walk in ignorance. I find a great joy to see that God is stirring people here at Good News. God has done many things with reference to missions here. We support 11 missionaries here at Good News Bible Church. And we've supported many who go on short-term trips we're sending a team to Liberia again in May into June to do a pastor's conference. Next Sunday, we're going to have a missions conference to just raise our awareness to what's going on across the world and what God is doing through us here. And that's why we pray, and that's why it's our heart's desire that God would stir in all of us a passion for missions, a passion for His glory and His fame to be spread throughout the world. And that's why it's our prayer that God would raise up missionaries among us. 
So let us take this God-glorifying, Christ-exalting message to all the peoples in the world, all peoples everywhere, no matter what the cost. If we are imprisoned, if we face execution, if we don't have running water, if we don't have electricity, let us be people who are boldly going and supporting those who go. Just think of what Paul said. To live is Christ and to die is gain. At that point, what's the worst thing they can do to you but lead you to gain? Are you ready to gain for the gospel, brothers and sisters? Let it be our desire to make him famous. Let's pray. Dear God, we give you praise, Lord. For we've felt that sweet kiss of your grace. And Lord, there are people who don't know it at all, God. And it really just burdens, Lord. There are people on the one hand who, who haven't even heard of the gospel. And then there are other people who, like the nations in Psalm 2, rage and plot and resist. But Lord, may we not curl up. May we not sit in our couches or in the comforts of our house. Stir our hearts, God, and give us a passion for missions. I thank you, Lord, for what you're doing here. Good news. Lord, we thank you, God, for the way you have moved people in the past people who've come to good news, who you've stirred up and you've sent them out, short-term and long-term. And God, we want to see that continue until you come back and establish your, king, oh Je- your kingdom, oh Jesus, sitting on your throne, ruling this earth. And we can all bow before you and with our tongues.